Good morning, everybody. If you uh, have a Bible this morning, I want to invite you to use it. Go ahead and take it and turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to finish up this chapter this morning as we continue moving through verse by verse by verse. This old, old letter written by one of Jesus' friends and colleagues, a man who knew him, was close personal friends with him, and who was given the responsibility of helping other people who didn't have the benefit of knowing Jesus come to know what he offers, what his life means, what his work for them can do to change their lives. And that's what we've been trying to track with over the last few months, and we're going to continue this morning. I, um, while you guys are turning over there, I, I don't know how many of you guys are familiar with this book. I wasn't until I had children and started reading it to them. Uh, going on a bear hunt, show of hands, maybe half of you. That's actually, uh, that's a, that's a, bigger percentage than I expected. Maybe I was just sheltered as a child and missed out on this one. Maybe it was written since I was a child. I don't even know when it was written. Going on a bear hunt. It's a a beloved book in the McCullough household. Um, Premise is a bit of a stretch. Um, So in this book, it's a a father who takes three or four little kids on a bear hunt. Just decides to walk out of their home with no weaponry, no defensive mechanisms of any kind with very small children, I might add, one of them on his shoulders, going on a bear hunt, reassuring themselves in what might have been a frightful situation that it's such a beautiful day. So why not go on a bear hunt? Because it's such a beautiful day. I don't know why that's supposed to encourage them, but it does. And along the way, as they hunt for bears, they meet various obstacles. They come to some grass. They come to some mud. They come to a deep, cold river and then a big, dark forest. They come through a swirling, whirling snowstorm and a narrow, gloomy cave. And every time they meet one of these obstacles, they say, We can't go over it. We can't go under it. So have to go, right kids? Through it. That's how I feel about this text. It's, uh, it's incredibly difficult to sort through the details that we're going to sort through this morning. In fact, nearly every line in this passage raises questions that have a wide range of answers among faithful Bible scholars who have given their lives to understanding what the Bible teaches. They don't agree with one another in every case. And every one of these lines that raises questions can be answered differently, leading to different answers about the subs- subsequent lines so that the mathematical vari- variety in play here for interpreting the whole thing is mind-boggling, especially to the mathematically challenged among us. Uh, I love Martin Luther. Many of you guys know that. He's a a famous Christian teacher and pastor, faithful brother uh, from the history of the church who was often known for funny and straight-to-the-point sayings about this text. He's a pastor, so he was preaching text verse by verse by verse through texts as he came to them. About this one in particular, Martin Luther said, this is a strange text and certainly more obscure a passage than any other passage in the New Testament. That's what Luther said. Quote, I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant, end quote. And I feel his pain. I don't know about the most obscure part, that it's the most obscure passage in the New Testament, but it is obscure. And I resonate with his honest conclusion. There are plenty that I don't know for sure about this passage that we're going to look at today, but we have to go through it. And we trust that we need it. And God, behind, God has inspired this word for his children for, throughout all times to benefit from it. 
And so our challenge as, as, as Christians coming to this passage is just to try to understand why it's here and what it means and how it brings hope and encouragement to our lives. That's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to do our best to learn from it and be encouraged by it. Now, I want to approach this text this morning a little bit differently than I normally would approach a text uh, in, in our sermons. Like normally, my job is to sort of bring the main points of each text to the surface and to frame them in ways that are helpful and encouraging for us. But this one has so many questions about it that what I want to do to, to, to sort of structure this time together this morning is just bring the main questions to the surface and work at them a little bit together so that hopefully by the end we're prepared to be encouraged by what this text teaches. I want to go at three questions this morning that we need to ask of this passage that I think will help us both to understand it better than we do uh, at the front end and then to hopefully be encouraged by it. Where does this text fit what does this text mean, and how is this text helpful? Now, maybe if you haven't read this text, I mean, many of you haven't read the text that I'm talking about, and you're wondering, why is he setting it up like this? I mean, how bad could it be? Well, I want to read for you now from First Peter chapter 3, and I'm going to ask you, in all seriousness now, to stand with me in honor of God's word, because this is a word for us from the God who made us and loves us and redeemed us at the cost of his son. This text matters. Let's read it together. And then spend some time trying to understand it. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to pick up in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly didn't obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is God's word. You can be seated. One of the most important things you can do to understand any passage in the Bible, any passage anywhere, and, and really any, most any other book, is to try to figure out where the passage fits in what's happening around it. Uh, I think it's especially important to do when there's details about a text that are tough to understand, whether it's the Bible or any other book that you're trying to read. Because whatever they mean, whatever these details are, whatever they are, they're, they're serving some sort of bigger purpose. You know, unless we're talking about some sort of chemically induced guitar-propping rock lyric, then, then probably it's best to assume that the writer knows what he's trying to say or what she's doing, and she isn't crazy. She's trying to lead you somewhere. So you want, to t- you want to just show respect to an author of whatever it is that you're reading and try to understand where they're, where they're leading you and, and try to fit each individual detail into that bigger picture. So what we want to do here is assume this writer's not taking a mental break. He's not confused. He's pushing something forward. So where does this text fit? That's what we need to notice before we start working through the details. And one of the best things you can do to try to understand where a text fits is to look at what comes before it and then to look at what comes after it. In this case, I think what comes before it and what comes after it make it really clear 
what Peter was trying to do with these verses we're going to spend some time on this morning. Look before our text. Look at verse thir- uh, 17, rather, of chapter 3. The, t- the verse right before what I've read for you this morning. He says, For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. That was a summary of something he'd been talking about for several verses. He's encouraging them, the people he's writing to, that suffering is not the end of the world. That, in fact, suffering is better than some other alternatives. And then in verse 18, he says, for. So what we know from those cues are that Peter's about to explain why suffering is better than some other alternatives. Why suffering is not the end of the world. Why you as a Christian can have a difficult time in your life, maybe for, for, for your entire life, and not have your life defined by your suffering. He's about to explain himself what he's been saying about suffering. Now skip ahead to the first verse of chapter 4. And he says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. He's pointing them right back to this same overall purpose. He wants them to suffer in light of Jesus. He wants them to arm their minds with the same way of thinking that, that, that comes out of Christ's model and what Christ has done. So what he's doing on both ends of the text we're looking at this morning is trying to help new believers who are suffering keep on going. He wants them to hold on to their faith when they might be tempted to let it go. He wants them to look to Jesus in the midst of what it is they're experiencing now. Because he knows that their faith is costing them something. So far, what their faith has cost them was probably just their standing in their communities, uh, maybe strained family relationships because they'd identified with Jesus and rejected whatever the family's belief system had been. Maybe they've taken a hit in their reputation. I mean, he mentions honor and shame a lot in this letter, probably because they were living with some shame in their culture because of their belief in Jesus. Maybe that shame had brought economic implications, like people didn't want to shop from their shops anymore, be associated with them in any way, because they'd now identify with Jesus, and they don't want the shame to sort of creep over onto them by coming to their shop. So, so who knows what hit they're taking in their community, but, but, but they're taking a hit. And what Peter knows is that it's only going to get worse for them, and it did. It wasn't long after this letter was written that, uh, that the Roman Empire began an official campaign of persecution against Christians that meant a lot of them being killed because they weren't willing to abandon their faith, deny Jesus as their Lord, and go back into the status quo. Peter knows that's coming. It's coming for Peter, and it's coming for them. And he knows that suffering raises questions, that they might be, willing, might be led to wonder, how powerful is this God that I've now aligned with? Or how loving is he if he would be willing to let this happen to me? How is this God and what he offers any better than what I had before when people still respected me, when my family still wanted me over for dinner, when no one questioned whether or not I was a loyal citizen of the Roman Empire? And so knowing those questions are back there, Peter is reminding them why they became Christians in the first place. It wasn't because it would lead to a better life now. That wasn't ever what they were offered. They became Christians because they wanted forgiveness. They became Christians because they wanted friendship with the God who made them. They became Christians because they wanted the promise of a new inheritance, a better identity granted as a free gift from God through Jesus. 
They weren't promised easy living in the meantime or anything different than what their Savior got when he was literally hounded out of the world by those who hated him. They were promised not an easy life, but that for them, as for him, suffering would lead to glory. They were promised that Jesus' victory would be theirs. And Peter's reminding them of that. Now with that bigger picture, with those bookends on side of each side of our text, what we know is that whatever this text means, it has to be encouraging to suffering Christians to keep on suffering in faith and not let go. So, with that context, we're ready to walk into the forest. What I want to do now is look at some of these trees. Let's try to flag them, tag them, if you will, uh, and, and try, to, try to figure out what these individual trees are doing. And then at the end, we're going to zoom back out and try to look at the forest again and see how it's encouraging for his readers and for us. Right now, we're going into the trees. Let's tag a few of them. What does this text actually mean? I mentioned before, there's a lot of questions raised by this text. I've certainly more than we're going to get to this morning. I, I want to consolidate the questions about this passage down to two big ones. Two big ones. And walk through some options for how to answer two big questions about what this text means. Uh, I'm going to do that in more detail than I normally would on a Sunday morning like this because I think it's the best way for us to respect this text, the author behind it, and the God who gave it to us and to try to learn from it this morning. I'm going to walk through in, in great detail, and then, and then we'll zoom back out. So just bear with me as we go detail by detail. We're going to try to bring some order to it by the end. Here's the first question that I want to try to put to this text and, and answer together this morning. What does it mean that Jesus preached to spirits in prison? That's what the text says he did. What does that mean? Our text opened with one of the most beautiful summaries of the gospel that, that I know of in the New Testament. We're going to come back to that. But just as soon as Peter has summarized the gospel in verse 18, just as soon as he's given us the gist of the Christian hope, he launches straight into an account of a journey by Jesus to a prison of some sort where he preaches to spirits of some sort who were disobedient at some point and in a way that's connected to Noah and the flood. So what does all that mean? I want to give you a couple of common ways, uh, common ways, a, a, a couple major explanations that have had a lot of support in the history of Christian thinking and talking about this text uh, that, that I guess are, are technically possible. One of them I think is very unlikely. Two of them I think are a little more likely. I'm in the build to the one that I think makes the best sense out of this text. So, one old view, the one I think is the least likely, in fact, I think we should reject it, is actually one of the most familiar because there's a line in one version of the Apostles' Creed that refers to this explanation of the text. It didn't, it didn't gain prominence until several hundred years after this text was written, but there is, there is a view that Jesus, while his body was in the tomb, after he was crucified, his body is laid in the tomb, for three days, right, waiting for the resurrection, waiting for Easter Sunday morning. And while his body was in the tomb, according to this view, his spirit goes to hell and preaches to, to, to spirits who were kept in hell. That presumably these spirits are people who were alive at the time of Noah, um, who are now in prison because they didn't listen to Noah's words. And that I, I, I think presumably Jesus is giving them some sort of second chance. 
that he's preaching the, go- the, 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 the assumption behind this view is that he's preaching the gospel to them. He's offering them to benefit from what he's just done on the cross while his body is, is still in the tomb. I think there are a lot of reasons that we need to reject this view and, and I'd be happy to talk about more of them after this if you're interested, but I think it's important to just note a few things I'm gonna write, rifle off. Nowhere else in the New Testament is this view taught, either that Jesus went somewhere during those three days or that there's such a thing as a second chance for people who have died without the gospel. Nowhere in this text are we told such a thing. We aren't told what he said. We certainly aren't told that he went to hell. And we aren't told that, that he went anywhere during the interim between his death and his resurrection. In fact, I think the most natural way to read the text is that he went somewhere after his resurrection. He was put to death in the flesh, we're told, and he was made alive in the spirit, which is a reference to the resurrection, not to a spiritual being made alive, but, to, uh, but being made alive by the Spirit, that, that it's, it's God's Spirit that gave new life to a body that was really dead. So what we have here are reference to his death and then his resurrection, and then he goes and he preaches somewhere. Big, as, as big as the theological problems with this first view, though, I think, I think the, the, a reason enough to reject it is that it just doesn't fit the context at all. Remember what we said about this context. It's got to encourage suffering Christians who are needing some reason to hold on when, look at, when, when, when their faith in Jesus is looking like a bad deal for them. I don't see how Jesus preaching to some people who were alive back during Noah's flood and giving them a second chance encourages Christians to, to hold on in faith. It doesn't fit the context besides all the theological problems. I think we can, that, that might be a view you've heard before. You might even think that Jesus did something like that after his death. I, I think you should reject that view. I don't think that that's faithful to this text or, or to the teaching of the, of the Bible in general. Here's another one. This is another ancient view. Augustine made this one popular, an early church teacher. He thought, and a lot of people following him have thought, that Jesus was speaking through Noah before the flood. You know, the Bible does say that, during the, that the prophets in the Old Testament had God speaking through them. His spirit gave them words to say and they spoke for him. They could say, thus says the Lord. So God was speaking through them. And, and so his view was, that's what Jesus was doing then. Back then, when Noah spoke and called people to repentance around him and said, it's the, the, there's a judgment coming, believe, repent, that Jesus was doing that. So it's, it's, he, he went through Noah to speak to them. They're now in prison because they didn't listen to him back then. I think this one's possible. But... But I think that the text reads like Jesus actually went somewhere after his resurrection. He went and proclaimed. He was put to death. He was made alive. He went and proclaimed. So it sounds like, I think we're meant to believe he went somewhere after having died and, and, and been raised again. The other big thing against this view is that this word that's used here for spirits, he went and proclaimed to the spirits. Verse 19 that word is almost without exception used for angelic beings, good or evil. Spirits like spirit, exclusively spiritual beings, not beings with bodies. So it's not, a, it's not a word that's used for like the human, the, the spiritual side of a human, the soul inside your body. Not for that. It's used for, for this other category of being. So the second view, I think, is possible, but, but not, not the one that I prefer. I, I prefer to follow the most common view of, of New Testament scholars today. 
both because they're New Testament scholars and I'm not, but also because I think that they, their reasoning makes sense. And I just want to give you a taste of it before we move on. I prefer this other option. I think it's the best fit in the context of the time that Peter wrote, in the context and flow of this passage. It's just that it's super weird to those of us who live in a modern closed universe. This third view, according to this third view, the one that I think makes the best sense of this text, what, we're ha- what we have here in this text is a window into a world that's envisioned by the Bible that is just far beyond the horizons most of us live with. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's a world beyond what I live with in my conscious every day. It's a world populated by spirits, some of them good, some of them evil. Spirits locked in battle with one another, and in the case of evil spirits, locked in war against God and his will for our world. Sometimes the Bible shows these spirits breaking into human history. You can actually see them interacting with humans as part of the story that the Bible tells. And one of the times that those evil spirits break into the world and our story as humans is this Noah story. So the pinnacle of evil that leads into the story of God judging the world with a huge flood that wipes out almost everyone alive was evil spirits basically assaulting human women, taking on human bodies and assaulting women. It's a, it's a symbolic story, not that it didn't happen, but a symbol of just how bad things had gotten at this time. And it towers over Jewish thinking from that time forward. The response of God to that flood was to wipe out those who had descended to that point. And according to Jewish tradition, including documents Peter would have had and seems to allude to here, seems to be maybe referring to, the evil spirits in question that were part of that story were kept, along with others, in some sort of bondage until the day of God's final victory when evil would be defeated and banished from the world once and for all. And one reason that I think we think that Peter had this idea in mind, a place of bondage for evil spirits who had been guilty of offense against God's, uh, those made in God's image in this world, is that Peter seems to allude to the same thing in his second letter. In 2 Peter chapter 2, let me just read you a couple verses. In 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter says this, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness, see the bondage, spirits in bondage, to be kept until the judgment. And if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, see him going to Noah? A herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Peter's referring, it seems to the same exact stuff. He says, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. So that's 2 Peter, same author, referring to something talked about in Jewish tradition. And it sounds a whole lot like what he's saying here in, in 1 Peter. And Peter isn't the only one who was interested in this theme. Let me read you just one more reference and then we're going to move on to the next question. This is uh, from, from Paul, Colossians chapter 2. Paul is talking about the gospel, the beautiful news that, that God has come to us in Christ, that those who were dead in their trespasses and sins, me, those who were like me, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, Paul says in Colossians 2, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Sounds a lot like 
Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And then listen to what Paul says. Listen to how he applies that Jesus took our penalty on the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He's not talking about Caesar. He's talking about spiritual powers. So Paul and Peter on the same wavelength, when Je- whatever Jesus did on the cross didn't just give us the therapeutic value of peace and, and, and a, a redemption from shame, though it gave us that. It also fundamentally changed the power structures we were caught up with and many of them unseen to us behind the scenes, spirits waging war for supremacy over the world. Jesus' death was a death blow to those who would have claimed power over this world. And what these authors are showing Jesus did once he dealt this death blow was go put them to open shame. Go rub it in their faces. If this is the background of what Peter has in mind, then what what Peter is saying is that Jesus, after his death, after he was raised to life again, went to these evil spirits who had opposed him and proclaimed his victory over them. Basically rubbing it in their faces. I think it makes sense not just out of verse 19 where it says he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison what he'd just done. But makes sense out of where he ends in verse 22. It ends again with Jesus who's gone into heaven at the right hand of God with the angels, authorities, and powers subjected to him. In a moment, I'm going to talk to you about why I think that would be encouraging to suffering Christians. For now, I want to just tag that tree, move to another tree in this forest, ask another question of this text before we zoom out and get the big picture second big question that this text raises I think for us is what does the flood and Noah's Ark have to do with baptism because he says after so he's talking about these spirits now they're in prison they formerly didn't obey back in the days of Noah and then that leads him into talking about the ark and the flood through which eight people were saved in the midst of those waters of judgment and now he says baptism which corresponds to this saves you through the water of chaos and justice, eight persons survived back in the days of Noah. Baptism is like that. Just as a few were saved in that ark from the waters of judgment, baptism now saves you. So what does he mean? Well, I think one thing that matters a lot for how we interpret this verse is the fact that Peter jumps immediately to qualifying what he's just said. He says, baptism now saves you. And then he says, well, not this though. Okay, don't, don't go over here. Because what he knew, surely, was that we would be just like every other human that's ever lived and we want something we can bank on, something that's tangible, something physical and tactile, something we can know hadn't happened, now it's happened, now we're good. We would want to lock in on something like the physical act of baptism to say, well, it's happened to me, so now I'm good. And he doesn't want us doing that. He wants to make sure when he says that, 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 that baptism now saves you, we know He's not talking about the mere physical act of baptism. Unfortunately, with that line of thinking, many people have lived entire lives thinking that they were at peace with God, 
just because they had experienced some physical act that had no effect on how they lived or how they thought about themselves or how they interacted with the world or how they, they trusted in Jesus and what he provides. Peter doesn't want us settling for that. So he tells us, he gives us a couple of qualifications that are the key to understanding what this means. He says, baptism now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, which is him saying, not just the sheer physical act of going down in the water and coming back up again. That's not enough. But as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those two things, those are what matter. When he says baptism now saves you, he's talking about an appeal to God for a good conscience and he's talking about the resurrection of Jesus. So why? How? He's talking about what baptism represents. Not the act itself, but what that act stands for. Baptism saves you as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. The key is what baptism pictures and why you'd want to be baptized in the first place. What baptism pictures, if we use Paul's writing in Romans chapter 6, which I'm not going to read for us this morning for the sake of time, but it's a great context clue for this one. What baptism pictures in going down into the water and in coming back up again is that everything Jesus went through, I went through in him. When he went down into his grave, as I go down into baptism, I died with him. The part of me that deserves judgment for my sin got what it deserves in Jesus. And that when Jesus' body emerged again from that tomb, when he came up, when he was made alive by the Spirit, I was made alive. The part of me that deserves to die did die. And the part of Jesus that deserves to live, I, I now share in. I get what he deserves. The righteous died for the unrighteous so that he might bring us to God. Baptism, according to Romans 6, and I think what Peter is referring to here, is a, is a picture of union with Jesus. It's a way that I claim for myself through faith what he went through as my own. The waters that we go down into are a lot, represent physically a lot, uh, something very similar to the waters of Noah's flood. They're the waters of judgment, death as a judgment for sin. We picture our going down into that judgment but coming through it just like Noah did in his ark because we go through it in Jesus so we're picturing what it means to be joined to him to have all that Jesus did become ours for us defining who we are and in deciding to be baptized in asking for it from the church we are appealing to God for this cleansing we are saying give me what Jesus deserves instead of what I deserve I deserve punishment for my sin. My, my conscience is not clean. It tells me the truth about who I am and what I've done. It is not what I want for myself anymore. So baptism pictures what faith is, an appeal to God for a new, clean self, a clean conscience, not based on me, but through, Peter says, the resurrection of Jesus, through everything Jesus did. It is me trying to claim what he did. I think that's the best way to understand what Peter means here. As one writer put it, we shouldn't make the mistake of limiting the significance of baptism to that moment and that action. Rather, he says, for Peter, the word baptism symbolically represents the whole process by which the gospel comes to people and they accept it in faith. 
Baptism is an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus where we ask God to give us what Jesus deserves. Those are a couple of the big trees that I wanted to make sure we flagged. I know that there are a lot more questions that I haven't gotten to and I invite you to come talk to me about them if you have them. But what I want to do to close our time this morning is make sure we see the point here that for all that isn't clear, there are some things that are clear. Things that these, these readers, these first readers needed to hear so they could hold on in faith and things that, that, that you and me need to hear so that we can hold on in faith, especially when we're suffering. I want to zoom out now. Imagine a drone like leaving the forest, getting up above it, giving us some drone footage of the whole thing. What are the colors? What are the textures in this forest? How does this forest land on you? What impression is it meant to give you when you see the whole thing? I want to just give you a couple examples. How is this text helpful? Let me give you, let me give you two ways. The first way is that this text reminds suffering Christians, them and you, what's already happened because of Jesus. This text is meant to give you an anchor point. In the midst of uncertainty, questions about why you're going through what you are, an anchor point that isn't unclear, something that's already happened. It's meant to remind you that the only thing that could separate you from God is your sin against God. Not some demonic power who whisks you away or takes you out. Not some set of circumstances in your life that you would never choose for yourself. There is nothing that could separate you from God except sin. And Jesus has already taken care of that. If you're not familiar with Christianity and its teachings, with what the Bible has to say about who we are and what we're like and what Jesus has done for us, one of the most important things you need to know is that the Bible talks about sin and takes it very seriously. It describes sin as a kind of turning inward where what I see most clearly and want most deeply is what's best for me as I define it. A turning inward where I am my main focus. And to turn inward is to turn away from others and their needs, but also to turn away from God, the source of all life and good and beauty in the world. And, and the Bible makes it clear that God's response to sin is the response of justice, to give us what we ask for. Every time we choose something that seems best to us rather than what's been told to us by the scriptures or by our own consciences even, what we're saying is that we prefer the world without God in it. God's response to that is to say, okay. The Bible says God shows us that our actions have consequences by showing us what it is to be without him. And that we can trace all of our insecurity, all of our anxiety, our fear, our shame, back to the fact that we've rejected the God who could protect us from all of it. To live without him is to live alone in our shame, alone in our weakness, alone facing death. To live without God. But what Peter is saying, the reason he starts with the gospel, is that Christ suffered once for sins, A righteous man who didn't deserve to die for unrighteous people who deserve nothing but death. 
so that he could bring us to God so that we wouldn't have to be alone in the world anymore. There was a price to be paid. The record had to be set right. Jesus paid it for anyone who will trust in him. The image of him having taken care of this problem that comes from the story of his death is the image of a curtain being torn in two. A curtain that had once separated Israel from the God who had come to them in the temple, separating those who were not worthy from the holiest place where God's presence was most intimately felt. When Jesus dies, that that curtain torn in two, symbolizing the fact that now we have been brought to God. It's done. It's over. It happened once. It doesn't need to happen again. So if you trust in Christ, and if Christ's righteousness is given to you, well, that changes everything about how you view your suffering now. Apart from Christ, on my own, I might look at my suffering as punishment. As God or the world or fate giving me what I've asked for. Apart from Christ, I might view my suffering as God's abandoning of me. As him pulling out of my life as a, as a force, as an influence, as a protector and a provider. But if I see my suffering in light of the fact that Christ, the righteous one, has died so that I don't have to, so that he could bring me to God, then I know I'm not being punished. He was. And I'm not being abandoned. No, he died so that I could be with God. And what I see most clearly in his suffering is the promise that there is no suffering beyond redemption. I may not know what's happening to me now or why. That may never be clear to me. But it is not beyond redemption and Jesus has already taken care of the most important problem I'll ever face. Why does Peter give us this text? Well, because suffering Christians need to be reminded of what's already happened in Jesus. An anchor for them as they go through whatever it is they're facing. There is another reason. How is this text helpful? Well, This text reminds suffering Christians, reminds Peter's readers, reminds you, not just of what's already happened, but of what will happen to them because of Jesus. This text points us back to something that happened once, but it also points us ahead to something that that will happen because of everything he's done. Baptism, I've already said, pictures union with Jesus. One of the most beautiful, powerful teachings of the, of the New Testament is that in, in, as Christians, as those who, who profess faith in Christ, who, who attach their hope to him, we're, we're one with him. Meaning that everything that happened to him already in God's eyes happened to us. And everything that happened to him in God's eyes will certainly happen to us. What's happened to him? Well, we talked about how he's died for our sins, but look at the victory that's put on display in these verses. He didn't only die, he was made alive. And as a newly living, resurrected person, he did battle and won. So he goes to the spirits who had opposed him and he tells them exactly how effective their work had been. And he goes to the presence of his father and he sits down because he's won his battle already. And all these powers are subjected to him. And, what, and when he does this, when he goes and sits 
What we're getting is a forecast of our story. Peter here is not using Jesus as an example. He's done that before. That is not what he's doing here. He said, just as Christ also suffered, so you should suffer in, in, in faith. He's not doing that here. He's saying, look what he did. Look what happened to him. Look where he sits now. That's where you're headed. And nothing can stop it. Hebrews chapter 6 uses these same themes to talk about Jesus as a forerunner, more than a guide, a forerunner for us in our experience. He says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner. He went there for us. We're coming in behind him. It's kind of like, I imagine it like, like the experience of going on a roller coaster and you're in one of the back cars, you know, and you go up that hill and you start to watch the cars go over it. Maybe this isn't a positive image for a lot of you, but I enjoy this. One by one by one, you see in, in every car going over, you see your own future forecasted. You're coming. And you're going too. Hebrews is telling us to look at Jesus and know how he, he's in the car in front of us and his force is pulling us right along behind him and nothing can stop it. So when you see him seated victorious on his throne, you are looking where you are going. Baptism is just a sign. He's not an example to follow. He's a forecast to watch while we wait. I, I, this week came across a, uh, in, a, in a book by another pastor a, a reference to the story behind the, the old hymn It Is Well With My Soul many of you may be familiar with this powerful story it's a, it's a hymn we sing a lot here wonderful summary of the gospel it's a story that it's a story that, that reminds us uh, of the power of the gospel for facing suffering so in, in, in one of the verses, the background, the background for, the, for the hymn is that this writer, a man named Horatio Spafford, had sent his wife and his four daughters to England ahead of him. He was coming in to join them for health reasons. They were going to spend some time in Europe, but along the way, their ship sinks, collides with another ship, and it sinks. His wife is saved, but all their daughters drown. He gets word from his wife and sails to, to meet her in England, and on the way, passing over the spot where it happened he's writing this hymn when peace like a river attends my way or when sorrows like sea billows roll whatever my lot you've taught me to say it is well with my soul but the interesting thing this pastor was noticing I think is so helpful here for this text one of these verses is, is all about the cross my sin Spafford writes Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. In a hymn, grappling with the grief over the loss of four daughters, he's talking about the cross. Why? Because he knows that whatever that was, in the mystery of a frowning providence. It wasn't him being punished for his sins. Jesus took that. And it wasn't him being abandoned by the God who made him. Jesus died so that he could be brought to God, not banished by him. And whatever it was, it wasn't a suffering beyond redemption. That's why he sings about the cross. And in the next verse, having looked back at what was, 
to encourage himself in the midst of his suffering. He looks ahead to what will be. Lord, he prays, haste the day when my faith will be sight. When the clouds get rolled back like a scroll and that whole spiritual realm in which Jesus did and won his battle gets to be seen by me in my little blinded, sheltered way. The day will be, when the clouds will be rolled back like the scroll, bring that day, he's praying. The trump will resound on that day and guess what will happen? The Lord will descend and even so, it is well with my soul. I mean, I mean, what else could happen to me that can stop me from that day? I know he's coming back. He's the forerunner. He sits there now waiting for the day when he can bring me to him. That's not a what if. That's, that's a what is and a what will be. And Peter's pointing us to those same hopes. This text is complicated. There's a lot of questions about it. Uh, but But... But the forest is clear enough, isn't it? We can suffer in solidarity with our Savior who came for us, who reigns now for us, and who one day will come back for us. Father, I pray that you would help us to live in the hope of this text, to see the things that aren't clear to us now in light of what is clear to us in Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you come quickly. And turn our faith to sight. In Jesus' name, amen.